Thank you, Dr. Mays. What a great privilege to be here among so many friends. And Pat, thank you for a very kind introduction. Uh, we love this church, and we are so many. We have so many close friends here. It's just like uh, coming home for us. So it's very easy to come here to PCB. And uh, I know your pastor is on vacation, getting a little bit of rest. Not as if you stress him out or anything like that. But I realize that. Uh, he needs a vacation every now and then. And I realize also, I hope you'll forgive me for wearing a tie, but I did listen to Pastor Tyson's sermon last week, and he said that this is a matter of Christian liberty, okay? <laughs> so, so I am wearing a tie this morning, and I do hope that you will forgive me on this. And it's, uh, it's a pleasure to see my colleague who I work with for a long, all the time, but uh, we have been separated since the summer months and uh, so we had to renew uh, our friendship again. It's good to see him back from um, the Philippines and he and his wife. And it's a pleasure to have him here, too. Well, this morning, the topic that we are working on is going to come from Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, let's go over to Hebrews chapter 12 and follow along as I read. We've entitled the message, Is God Punishing Me? Is God punishing me? And the reason why I've entitled it that is because over the past several years in counseling, quite frequently when a person has poured out sometimes their entire life in front of me in a counseling situation, sometimes with tears rolling down their face, they'll ask the question, is God punishing me? And you may be asking yourself the same question. You say, well, certainly God's punishing me. Look who I'm married to, all right? God is punishing me, all right? This is a lifelong punishment. Well, let's take a look at this from Hebrews chapter 12. We're interested in verses 7 through 11. Here in verse 7, he says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all of you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful yet to those who have been trained by it afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness there are four expositional principles that i want to draw from this particular passage and i would encourage you to write these down because at some particular point you're going to need them or somebody in your christian life is going to need them and you'll be able to quickly go back to them before I do that, I need to share with you a story. Back about eight or nine years ago, I had an opportunity to go to Germany, and uh, we were in the city of Cologne, Germany, doing a training conference for past, uh, pastors and their wives from all over Germany and some parts of France and, and the Switzerland. And there were well over 200 pastors that were there with their spouses, and I had a translator that was with me. He's a graduate of the Master's Seminary. His name is Martin Manton. Martin is a tall guy, um, grew up in Switzerland, speaks fluent German and French, and actually came to the United States when he was a teenage boy and went through high school here. So he speaks fluent English as well. And he was my translator, and I always love working with Martin. Martin's such a great guy, and he's a tall guy. In fact, Here's a Swiss guy. He's the only Swiss guy I ever knew that played American football. Tall guy and pretty big guy. He makes me look small, and that is really something. So he's standing right next to me to my left translating, and we had been teaching all day long. Myself and another colleague that had gone with me had alternated sessions all day long, and I had the last address of the night. And so it was around probably 8 o'clock in the evening when I finished and we closed in prayer and dismissed them. And of course, they were going to come back the next day and then the next day after that and the next day after that. So I dismissed the, the, all the pastors, their wives, and all the church leaders there. 
And Martin and I were kind of wrapping things up in front and putting our notes together and we were ready to leave. And I saw kind of in my peripheral vision coming up one of the side aisles of the church, an elderly woman, probably close to in her late 70s, early 80s maybe, coming up the aisle just about as fast as a woman like that could move. And she was in a long gray coat and had a scarf tied around her head. And then one of the first things I noticed about her was how swollen her ankles were, which suggested congestive heart failure. And she grabbed a hold of my translator and pointed a finger at me. And, uh, and I'm ready to say, listen, I'm not responsible for anything I say after 8 o'clock in the evening. <laughs> All right. And um, Martin turns to me and he says, this woman wants to tell you something. And, uh, and I'm ready to say, well, you let tell her to come back tomorrow and I'll be more than willing to sit down and talk with her. And uh, Martin says, she wants to share with you something that she's never shared with anybody her entire life. When a, when a lady that's close to 80 years old says something like to me, she's got my attention. She's got my attention. I said, okay, well, let's go off to the side here. And we found three chairs and we sat down. And this lady began to pour out what had happened in her life. And you understand, being a counselor, and I'm sure Dr. Scott can share the same thing, over the years we hear a lot of horrible stories. This ranks right up there as one of the worst I've ever heard in regards to a person's life and what she went through in life. She was a lady who actually was born and grew up in the Soviet Union, <coughs> in the central part of the Soviet Union. And if you know anything about your history, back in the late 1700s when Catherine the Great ruled Russia, Remember, she had uh, replaced her husband, Peter III, after he had been assassinated. And she ruled for almost 34 years from around 1762 all the way to 1796. And during that time, Russia was extremely poor. The economy was horrible, much worse than it even is today. Um, and so in order to help the, the economy, Catherine the Great went to Germany and actually said to a lot of German farmers, and at that particular time, the German farmers were the best farmers in the world, and said, listen, if you're willing to come to Russia and teach our farmers how you farm, then we'll give you large plots of land because Russia economically was very poor, but one thing they were rich in was a lot of land. And so as a result of that, thousands of German farmers wanting big farms. And the European feudal system, most land was already bought up, so guys couldn't have farms. So to go to Russia and get big farms was a big draw. So thousands of Germans left Germany, went to Russia. And even if you were to go there today, in fact, just a couple of years ago, I was in Samara, Russia. There are conclaves of German immigrants from back during that time still dotted all over Russia. And her parents, her great-great-grandparents, were actually part of those immigrants that moved there. So her lineage was German, but she had grown up there in Russia in the Soviet Union during that particular time. And her father was a pastor. He pastored an illegal church there in the communist Russia at that time. And they had about 400 people that were in their church. And every Sunday they would meet out in the woods. And they would have worship services out in the woods. Because they couldn't have any property. They couldn't be in any property. And yet they had really a sizable church that a lot of people who really loved the Lord. And so she grew up in that church with her father as the pastor. And when she became a teenager... She met a young man in that church, and uh, they fell in love together, or at least so she thought. And as a result of that, she made a very tragic and very sinful mistake and spent one night with that particular young man, and through that one experience, she got pregnant. Which you understand, back in the early 1900s, when the news spread that she was pregnant, it brought shame on her 
shame on her parents, shame on the church. It was just disastrous. And what made matters worse was the fact as soon as the young man found out that she was pregnant, then he didn't want to have anything to do with her. And he just took off and sort of disappeared, which really hurt her because she felt like, and I can still remember her saying this to me, she felt like that that was the young man that she was going to spend the rest of her life with and that if he found out that she was pregnant, that they would get married and they would spend their life together. Nothing could have been further from the truth. And so this made her intensely angry just so angry that he would do that kind of thing, in a sense, betray her love. And then her parents, after they found out, were trying to decide exactly what to do with her because at that particular time, when those kind of things happened, it brought just incredible shame upon the family. And her parents didn't know quite what to do until her uncle came along and suggested a, an idea, and her uncle suggested that he get her a job in another town and that she go and live and support herself there until she has her baby, and then she give the baby up for adoption because, of course, as Christians, abortion was not an option, and abortion in those days, early 1900s, was very crude anyhow, and a lot of women died during abortions. And she didn't like this plan at all. She made it very clear to me that this was not at all what she thought her life was going to be like but they decided they didn't have any other alternative. This is what they were going to do. And she described for me the day that they took her down to the local train station and put her on the train, her father, her mother, her uncle, some of her family members were all there to put her on the train to go to this other town to get this job and have the baby and then hopefully come back and kind of save face. And she was so angry at her father, her mother, her uncle, and all that had happened. She absolutely refused to say goodbye to them. Just refused. She just got on the train and, and left without saying goodbye. And that was the last time she ever saw them. It took a two-day journey on the train in order to get to this particular town, which was on the very edge of Siberia. She finally made it to the town got off the train, met a person that was supposed to take her to her job, and her uncle had never told her this. She arrived at her job, and here it was a gigantic work camp of well over 600 men. It was actually a prison camp. And her job was to prepare two meals a day, and she was the only person to do that for 600 men twice a day. And they had a little kitchen prepared for her where she had to do that. So she was working early in the morning until late at night preparing meals as a young lady, a young pregnant gal, and she had no one to help her. And then as the tears rolled down her face, she began to describe for me how every single day, sometimes repeatedly, she was raped by those men. It was horrible. It was just a living hell on earth. Just horrible. One day, nine months has gone by, she's fully pregnant. She's walking into town in the middle of winter. She was by herself. The baby decided to come. She described for me how she sat down in a snowdrift delivered her own baby, cut the cord. And you understand, in her thinking, this baby was the cause of all of her misery. She picked up her baby, took it, threw it out across the ice. And the tears just rolled down her face. Through a set of circumstances, she was able to get out of that prison camp and go to East Germany. That's when the wall was still up between East and West Germany. She got a job there, started making just a little bit of money, ran into a young man 
This time she got married. Not long after she got married, she got pregnant. As soon as her husband found out that she was pregnant, he left her and she never saw him again. For the next 18 years, she worked at that job, delivered that little girl, and raised her daughter until she was 18, 19 years of age. Her daughter grew up, met a young man, got married. Not long after she was married, she had a daughter. And two months after her daughter delivered her granddaughter, her daughter and son-in-law were killed in a tragic car accident. And now she's left with her granddaughter to raise her granddaughter. You think you have a hard life. For the next 18 years, she raises her granddaughter. During that particular time, the wall between East and West Germany came down. And some of you are familiar with the fact that when that happened, all the poor people in East Germany flooded into West Germany because they considered the West Germans being incredibly wealthy. And this grandma and her granddaughter located two blocks from the church there in Cologne, Germany where we were teaching. <coughs> and her granddaughter began attending the church there. And through that experience, her granddaughter came to Christ. Gloriously saved. And her granddaughter started coming home on a regular basis and saying to Grandma, Grandma, you've got to come to church me. Not interested. Grandma, come on. you got to come to church. Not, not interested. Not, not interested. Come on, Grandma. you got to go to church with me. I gave up on God a long time ago. Not interested in any of that stuff, Grandma said. But she kept bugging Grandma. And eventually, Grandma says, okay, listen, I'll go with you one time. I'll go with you to church one time. After that, I don't want you to say anything about it. Granddaughter agreed. Grandma went to church with granddaughter. In that one time, God melted her cold heart, her cold, angry heart. She gave her life to Christ. And that was just four months before we showed up. And she came. Here's all these church leaders from all over Germany. And she sat in the very back, Grandma, by herself, with a long coat on, scarf around, listening to everything that we're teaching. Just drinking in everything that we, she can drink in. After telling me this story, with the tears still running down her face, she said to me, is God punishing me? <laughs> That's a great question, isn't it? Is God punishing me? If I had a nickel for every person to ask me that in counseling, I'd probably make Bill Gates look like a poor man. Is God punishing me? And you may have asked yourself that question as well. Well, I saw that she had a little teeny German Bible. And I said to her, I, wa I want you to grab your Bible and I want you to turn over to Romans 8. So well, why don't you put a marker right here just for a moment. I want you to go over to Romans 8 just for a moment. Now you've got to understand I just shared with you just a little bit of her story. It took her almost an hour and a half to tell me her life story. And at the end of that, I just identified all, all kinds of things in that woman's life that I need to address. And I thought, my goodness, we're going to be here all night. But when I saw she had a Bible, I said, listen, would you take it and go over to Romans chapter 8? So m my translator had to help her find Romans 8. I said, I want you to read out loud verse 1. And she read in kind of her broken German, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I said to her, I said, 
do you know who wrote that? And she said, no. I said, a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. Do you know anything about the Apostle Paul? She says, I don't remember very much about the Apostle Paul. I said, well, aside from the fact that she, he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, aside from that, did you know that the Apostle Paul participated in the early murder of Christians? In fact, his conversion was a direct answer of prayer to Stephen, who was a martyr, the first Christian martyr. When they were stoning Stephen to death, Stephen prayed that they might be forgiven. And Saul was among them. And Saul then became Paul later after the conversion. Direct answer. But before that, he participated in the murder of Christians. In other words, I said to her, I want you to understand this is a murderer writing these words. She looked at me and she looked down at her Bible and she looked at me and she looked down at her Bible again. And then I explained it what, what it meant at that particular point in relationship to her life and tears started running down her face again and she started, she almost could not control herself. I said, do you understand that when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, these are the very kind of things that he died for. He died for these sins, including the sin of murder. So I said to her, listen, I want you to go home tonight and I want you to memorize this. And tomorrow I want you to come back and quote it to me and tell me what this means, which really was a tall order for a lady of that age. She agreed to do that. We had prayer. By the way, it had been pouring rain all that day, just pouring rain. She had walked several blocks in order to come in pouring rain to those services. We made sure she had a ride home that night. Next morning, I saw my translator, Martin, in the foyer of the church. I said, Martin, have you seen so-and-so? No, no, haven't seen her. And just then, she comes bursting through the front doors of the church, moving just about as fast as a 80-year-old woman can move, all right, towards us with the biggest toothless grin you ever saw. Like that. And she came to us, and I said, Martin, ask her if she memorized her verse. He said, she did. I said, well, ask her to quote it. She already did. Well, how'd she do? She did it perfectly. Good. Well, ask her to tell us then, what does that mean in relationship to her life? And she looked me right in the eyes, and she began to explain it in her broken Russian-German Martin sometimes had a hard time translating her because she kept lapsing back into Russian. And I said, well, how'd she do? She said, she did great. And the tears just rolled down her face again. She said to him, you understand the past 55 years I've carried this guilt with me. And it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> it's gone. I can't help tearing up every time when I think about her and her response to that. The guilt is gone. Let's go back to Hebrews 12. I said there are four expositional principles here we want to nail down very, very clearly. And the first one actually comes from verse 7. Where it says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there? whom his father does not discipline. Now, a good way to translate this particular verse, um, staying as close to the translation as we can, here the writer of Hebrews is saying, it is this hardship, all hardship, is this discipline. All hardship, no matter how great your hardship is, no matter how little your hardship is, 
That is part of the discipline of God in your life. All hardship, all discipline is God dealing with you as with sons. So there's a first thing that you need to nail down in your thinking, in your own personal daily theology, and that is this. I must view hardship as God's discipline. That first point is very important. I must view hardship as God's discipline because God uses hardships and trials and difficulties and sufferings in our lives to shape us. It is part of his discipline. No matter how little that difficulty may be, no matter how difficult it may be, no matter what's going on in your home or at your job or at school, whatever the case may be, all hardship is to be viewed as God's discipline because God's dealing with us as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In other words, if you truly have a loving father, then he will take the time and the effort and the energy to discipline his children. That's what a father's supposed to do. Children may view it as, oh, this is horrible. But at the same time, it's actually helping them to be more mature. I've got to view all hardship as discipline. God is dealing with me as with a son, as a true child. And the implication of these verses is, if you're not going through some kind of difficulty or hardship, it's a good reason to begin to question whether or not you're God's true son. If life is really, really easy for you, you have to look in the inside. What's really going on? God is in the direct job or work of disciplining his, his children. I want you to see this. This has always been true. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Put a marker here in Hebrews chapter 12. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I want you to notice what Moses, Moses writes here in verse 2. When he says this, he says, You shall remember all the way which your Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you will keep his commandments or not. Now notice, God is giving the rationale of why he took the people of Israel through the 40 years of wilderness experience. Why? He says to humble them, to test them, to know what was in your heart. Now, you understand that God did not test them so that he could know what was in their heart, right? Because God is omniscient. He already knows what's in their heart. He did not test them so that he could know what was in their heart. He already knew what was in their heart. Listen, he tested them so that they could know what was in their hearts. That's the issue. We think we know our hearts, but we really don't know our hearts until God takes us through difficulty, hardships, trials, testings, and all of a sudden, the issues of the heart then begin to be squeezed to the surface. And we realize in the midst of a conflict with my wife or my husband, I end up saying such ungodly things. Why? We didn't think that those were in our hearts. But it wasn't until the pressure and the conflict of marriage brought that up that all of a sudden these things come squirting out. And all of a sudden we realize, oh my goodness, I can't believe I just said what I said. I can't believe I just did what I did. Why did I do that? It's because that trial and that conflict has just squeezed your, it was there all along. You just didn't even know it was there. When the world says, you got to get in touch with your heart, they don't know what they're talking about. Because they think it's getting in touch with how good I am on the inside. But that's not it. When you're really in touch with your heart, all of a sudden, it's a humbling experience we begin to realize how awful it is still and how I'm capable of such wicked things in my life. And I wouldn't even know that I was capable of those wicked things unless God turned up the pressure in my life. I wouldn't even know it. 
I would go happily through life thinking I'm a pretty good person. God had to take the people of Israel through 40 years of an experience, a horrible experience in order to test them. I wonder how many years it's going to take God to show you your heart. I hope not 40 years. 40 years of hardship, difficulty. My lady friend, my German-Russian lady friend, 55 years, almost 60 years of hardship, horrible hardship. God humbles us. How does he do it? He takes us through difficulty, hardships, trials. That's what he does. You know, I love tea. That's about all I drink, tea and water. Sometimes I go into restaurants and order hot tea, and, you know, the waitress will always bring out this box with 2,000 different forms of tea in it, all right? And there's all kinds of herbal teas. And I comment on how unpatriotic she is because there was only black tea in the Boston Harbor, not all this other junk. No flavored teas, no herbal teas, none of that. There's only black tea. That's all I'm interested in. I'm just interested in black tea. Now, how do I know whether or not that tea's any good? Well, I can take a look who manufactured it, who put it in the little tea bag. I can sniff it. I can try to smell to see if it's any good. I really don't know whether or not that tea's any good until I take that little thing and I put it in hot water. And all of a sudden, after it's seeped a little bit, I find out whether or not that tea's any good. That's what God does with your heart. God takes your heart and puts it in hot water, and all of a sudden, whatever it is that comes out, whatever seeps out, is what you truly are. Whatever seeps out is what is you, is you. If you go to the automobile museums up in Detroit, Michigan, you can see this. They have these displays up there where they take the pistons of trucks and cars, and they take these pistons and put them under really heavy, heavy pressure. All right, way beyond what they would normally be under in a normal car engine or a truck engine. And when they put them underneath this heavy pressure, all of a sudden little cracks and fissures begin to appear in the metal and little things. And they do that for a purpose. Why do they do that? Because they do it to show where that metal is going to break down. They want to know exactly where it's going to break down. They want to know all the impurities in that metal as much as possible so then they know that your car piston has been put under that kind of pressure. God takes your heart in the same way. He puts it under the pressure of life and all the little cracks and fissures begin to appear. And, and all of a sudden we begin to realize, I can't believe I did what I just did. I can't believe I said what I just said. Oh, yeah, because that is truly you. That's truly you. We hide ourselves from other people but, and we hide ourselves from ourselves. That's the greatest delusion. We hide ourselves from ourselves. Wow. Our God is preoccupied. He is preoccupied with testing your heart. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That's the way we really live. And by the way, that's the way we really understand ourselves is from everything that comes from the Lord's mouth. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years, he says. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son, therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. And by the way, when you find out how prideful your own heart is, it is the fear of the Lord that is the ultimate antidote. When you find out how prideful your heart is, it is the fear of the Lord that is the ultimate antidote. Wow. Take your Bible. Let's go over to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 3. Notice what the Lord says here. It's almost as if 
our Lord, his occupation is this. Proverbs 17.3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. The Lord tests hearts. You see that? He's preoccupied with testing your heart. That's why you go through what you go through. Because he's preoccupied with doing this. Let's go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're interested in verse 67. Sometimes I tell my students, fasten your seatbelts and put your crash helmets on. Well, you need to do this here. Psalm 119 and verse 67, where it says, because I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 68, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. And by the way, that word was, it's translated here in the English was. In the Hebrew, you can translate this as a present tense. You can actually translate this. It was good for me that I am afflicted. I am afflicted. In other words, it could be something that I'm currently going through. Verse 73, your hands made me, that's Hebrew past tense, and fashioned me, that's Hebrew imperfect. That means he continues to fashion us. Your hand made me in the past, but he continues to fashion me now. You see, what is God doing? When he's fashioning me now, he's working on my heart. He's preparing my heart for heaven. How does he do that? Trials, difficulty, hardship, suffering, that's part of God's discipline. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We have a tendency to think that God is being unfaithful when he afflicts us. Lord, why are you so unfaithful to me? Look what I'm going through. Our heart says, no, the psalmist says God is being faithful to you when he afflicts you. Okay, Lord, bring it on. I want to experience your faithfulness. Wow. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I would have perished in my affliction. If your law had not been my delight, I would have died in it. It would have crushed me. I would have been turned to powder. No. So principle number one, I must view hardship as God's discipline. You have to nail that down. What's going on? There's a second principle. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're interested in verses 8 and 9. Look at this again. Look at it with a keen, fresh eye. Verse 8 says, But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to our father the father of our spirits, and live. So number one, I've got to view hardship as God's discipline. But the second expository principle here is that when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. When God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. That's exactly the point of verses 8 and 9. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is attempting to say. He's, God is being faithful to you when he does this. This is exactly what loving fathers do. Now, this is not a reference to earthly fathers who are abusive, unkind, who really don't love their children. It's not that. It's a reference to good earthly fathers that genuinely love their children. Earthly fathers will take their children through difficulty and hardship. They'll do this. Why? Because they love them. They want them to grow up. Make your bed. Ah! 
clean up your room. Ah! You think that they're dying out in the wilderness for 40 years. All right. But this is what earthly fathers said. Mow the lawn. Ah! I got to mow the lawn. Clean up the garage. Oh! You can hear the pain and the heartache in their life. That's a purifying pain, you understand, parents. That's a purifying pain. That's a good pain. All right. When the groaning and the muttering and all of this stuff begins. All right. This is exactly what the children of Israel did. They grumbled and complained in the wilderness. Why? Because they were under pressure. This was really hard for them. Hopefully it's not going to take your kids 40 years to learn their lessons. It did God's kids. Took them, took 40 years for them to learn their lessons as the children of God. So when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. This is exactly what a loving father does. What it does. Go back to Psalm 89. Look at this. This is all over scripture. And I'm going to give you just a couple examples. But in Psalm 89, verse 32, it says, this is a psalm of Ethan. It says, then, where he's speaking for God, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity, verse 32, with stripes. Verse 33 says, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. You know, a, a good loving spanking is not bad for a kid. And there was a thing running around the Internet just yesterday about how the APA has now indicated that spanking is, is bad for your kid. It causes brain damage later on in life. And I read through that, those articles very carefully with a fine-tooth comb, printed them off, highlighted the keywords there. The study didn't prove that at all. That's some writer that's saying that the study may indicate that. And by the way, when they do those studies, there's no differentiation between a person who mercilessly beats their kid and someone who lovingly spanks their kid. No differentiation made in those studies whatsoever. But we're talking about here God being referred to a loving father who will mercifully but lovingly and sometimes through hardship spank his kids. He'll do that. That's what a loving father does. Go to Job chapter 12. Notice this. In Job chapter 12, uh, this is, gives us a little bit of keen insight into um, the Lord's working. And Job is talking in verse 5. He says, um, He who is at ease holds calamity in contempt. Job is making a, a great observation about human nature. When your life is really easy, then you kind of hold in contempt any kind of hardship that you go through. Verse, at the end of verse 5, he says, as prepared for those whose feet slip. The implication is that those who have easygoing lives, their feet are on slippery ground. The tents, verse 6, of the destroyers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure, whom God brings into their power. In other words, there are a lot of people out there that are living easy, carefree lives, but they're enemies of God. That's the implication. And, and Job went through trials, hey? Major trials. There are people out there that have easy, carefree lives, but th those people are enemies of God. Verse 7, but now ask the beasts and let them teach you and the birds of the heavens and let them teach you. Or speak to the earth and let it teach you and let the fish of the sea declare to you who among all of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this 
in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. We are held there. This is why we said a little bit earlier that when you all of a sudden you discover the pride and the haughtiness of your own heart, that the fear of the Lord becomes the antidote to that. So when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. You say, okay, all right, I fully understand everything you said up to this particular point, but you really still have not answered the question, is God punishing me? That's a great question. And you're right, I haven't fully answered it yet. So let's answer it. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. We're interested in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with a magnifying glass. For they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them, speaking of human fathers, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Sometimes as human fathers, we blow it, right? We blow it. We discipline our children. They shouldn't be disciplined. I've done that as a human father. If you're a father, you've probably done that as well. Find out a little bit later, wait a minute, they didn't do what you thought they had done. But at least the intention is right. The intention is to kind of correct the misbehavior of the child. Even though you discipline them for something that they didn't really do, there's probably 25 things that you didn't catch that now they're paying for. All right? So you got to remember that. All right, there's at least 25 things that you didn't catch. So you're making up for time. So principle, expositional principle number one, I must view all hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship in my life, he's acting as a heavenly father. Now listen to this. When you look at verse 10, we get this very, very clear idea. Number three, this discipline is not punitive. It's corrective to bring about greater holiness in my life. Did you hear me? This discipline is not punitive. It's corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. That's the purpose. He says that in verse 10. For they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. He always does the perfect discipline so that we may share in his holiness. That's the reason. Now, the whole argument of the book of Hebrews wars against the idea that God is punishing me. Why? Because the whole argument of the book of Hebrews is Christ, once for all, payment on the cross, took all the punishment that I needed for my sin. God is not punishing me. God is disciplining me for the good purpose of holiness. That's a radical difference, right? Go back to Hebrews chapter 10. He talks about this. Hebrews 10, verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10, 10. Then look at verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. We're not Roman Catholics doing the, the mass over and over again, re-sacrificing the body of Christ over and over again for additional sins. No, no, no. He says, for all time, one sacrifice. We don't say the rosary or go through any kind of self flagellating activity in order for us to add our sufferings to Christ's sufferings so our sins could be paid for. That's Roman Catholicism. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches Christ paid for your sins once for all, all time. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Do you see the distinction? This is the reason why we're, we're Protestants. We're not Roman Catholics. 
We don't have to go to a confessional and sit down in a privacy of a booth, confess it, and then the priest says, well, you need to go and say so many Hail Marys, and you need to go this and do this for the church, and you need to do this and go through all kinds of difficulty and hardship in order to add your suffering to Christ's suffering because that would imply that somehow Christ's suffering was insufficient to pay for my sin. God does not punish his children. He disciplines our, his children. It's not punitive. It's for the purpose of correction. It's for the purpose of discipline unto holiness so that we can be, listen to this, Christ-like. So that we can be Christ-like. This is really key. So, number one, I must view hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. Number three, this discipline is not punitive, it's corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. But listen to number four. You say, okay. You say, I understand what you're saying up to this particular point. I understand where you've gone with this. But how do I know whether or not it's worked? Uh Right? How do I know whether or not it's worked? In my life. Well, this is number four. Look at verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. And all God's people said, amen. It's hard for the moment. Yet, it says, to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. How do I know that this discipline has worked in my life? Number one, I must view all hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. Number three, this discipline is not punitive. It's corrective to bring about greater holiness in my life. Number four, listen to this. I'll know when this hardship has done its job. Because my heart will be at peace. I'll know when this hardship has done its job because my heart will be at peace. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. That doesn't mean the trial's gone away. That doesn't mean the difficulty's gone away. That doesn't mean the problem has gone away. That doesn't mean that God's gotten rid of your husband or your wife. They're still there. All right? No, my heart's at peace. I'm no longer fighting God in this. I'm no longer saying on the inside, oh, I can't believe I'm going through this. How could you do this to me, God? How could you put me through this? Don't you love me? And God's screaming from heaven, I love you. That's why I'm putting you through this. That's why I'm putting you through this. Because it's for your best. Because it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We're not fighting God. We're not, our heart is not full of all kind of angst. Or anger. Like my Russian German lady. By the way. A few years later I was back in Cologne, Germany area. And I saw the pastor of the church. Pastor, how's so-and-so doing? (laughs) That woman is a dynamo in our church. I said, really? He said, yeah. He says, once a month, we have an entire church dinner. Church around 500 people there in Cologne. We have a dinner. And she doesn't let any of the rest of the women in the church get into the kitchen. She fixed the whole thing. Really? I said, well, you know where she learned that was back in. She said, yeah, yeah, I know. She took that horrible time of her life, excruciating time of life, a life that was a hell on earth, and she turned it to an asset in blessing hundreds and hundreds of people. She turned it to an asset. Imagine that. Even though what you've gone through, even though you've experienced a lot of loss, I'm not going to demean or take anything away from that. The 
question is, how can you turn that to an asset to God's glory? Jonathan Edwards was probably America's greatest theologian. While he was the president of the <coughs> College of New Jersey, which later on became Princeton University, he died, at least from a human perspective, somewhat prematurely, March 22nd, 1758, from a smallpox inoculation. Jonathan was a married man. He had a wife who loved his, her husband dearly, dearly. She was incredibly grieved over the loss of her husband. Upon his death, Sarah Pierpont Edwards wrote to her daughter the following words. Listen to what she says. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands over our mouths. The Lord has done it, but he's my God, and he has my life, and we are all given to my God. Wow. Can you do that? After God has reached out of heaven with a rod and just struck you across the back, can you turn around and kiss the rod? Hmm. Kiss the rod. Spurgeon said in his sermon on Psalm 88 and verse 7, he says, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Kiss the wave. Can you kiss the wave that throws you against the coral, a sharp coral and the rocks? Because you know that that wave is under the control of Almighty God and it's in his hands and he does these things for your good, for your good. That's what he does. Four things you need to remember here that's key. Number one, I must view hardship as God's discipline. That's verse seven. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. That's verses eight and nine. Number three, this discipline is not punitive, it's corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. That's verse 10. And then verse 4, I'll know, or I mean principle 4, I'll know when this hardship has done its job because my heart will be at peace. One early church father wrote this. We don't read enough of the early church fathers, but listen to what he wrote. Afflictions are as nails driven by the hand of grace which crucify us to the world. Afflictions are then blessings to us when we can bless God for afflictions whose single view is causing us to pass through fire is only to separate the sin that he hates from the soul that he loves. That's affliction. What's God's purpose? To separate the sin in our heart that he hates from the soul that he loves. That's affliction. Is God punishing me? If you're a believer, the answer to that is a very clear no. Is he disciplining me for the purpose of righteousness? The answer to that is absolutely. In order to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heart with me in prayer? Gracious Father, in a congregation this size, I am sure that there are many men and many women who are still fighting you in this. They're still fighting you when it comes to the affliction. They think that somehow you have dealt them bad cards, that you have, in a sense, visited upon them things that are unjust, and their heart is far from at peace. They're full of anger, spite, animosity, even towards you. They're fighting you. I pray, Father, that you will help them to lay down 
the instruments of war against you. And realize they're not paying for their sins because Jesus Christ paid for it all. On the cross, for all time, sins have been taken care of. No, but you are disciplining us for the purpose of holiness, for the purpose of godliness. That we can be more like your true son, Jesus Christ. Once we understand that, fully accept that, fully embrace that, all the weapons of war are laid down. And even though the affliction may be still going on, our heart is at peace. It brings the peaceful fruit of righteous behavior now instead of fighting you. Help us to be at peace with you, dear Lord. This we pray in Christ's name.